That's so good. We are, uh, we'll never be up here to put on our performance. We honestly have nothing to offer in ourselves. I, I feel like, and I know Blake does too, glad to have you back, man. Robin, so glad to have you guys back. Miss you guys so much. I feel like the disciples, as they were entering the, the temple that day, and there's a beggar there, and he's asking for alms for the poor, and just something. And they said, we got nothing. Silver and gold have we none, but what we have we give. And that is what I feel like every time I stand before you. I have nothing to give over these next 30 minutes other than Jesus. But he's the best we could ever give and receive. Mm, man, that hit me. That struck me, that struck me deep to the core. Um, growing up, I loved planes and pirates. Let me explain that, okay? I loved airplanes. I mean, who, who doesn't like to take a piece of paper? I remember with, with my brother, I've got a, one older brother that I grew up with, and you know, I come from a, a hybrid, broken family, and so now I've got half-brothers and stepbrothers and sisters and all that. I mean, some of you guys know what I'm talking about there. You can relate. I had one that I, that I grew up with as a kid, and I remember so many times, and now with my kids, I remember, you know, we'll, we'll take piece of paper, and we'll, uh, this is the simplest one I learned to make, all right, and we'll make airplanes. There's just something about airplanes that is fun. It's just fun. Some of you guys are pilots in the room. You probably, you probably grew up making airplanes like one day I'm going to fly an airplane, and that's what you do, and so good on you. Way to go. Uh, I just like them, you know, and we take them, and we just Try to design them. Some of you engineers probably were really into this. Like, and you, you did, like, you know, here's a test of this, and here's a test of that, and here's the one that has the, the, the most lift and least drag. And I don't know, maybe some of you adults, you still do this. I, from time to time, I, I just love it. I just love it. And I love pirates. I don't know, just something about pirates. I don't, I don't like to steal things. I mean, I used to back in, back in the day, but I don't anymore. Uh, but... When I was a kid, I, I stole a lot. I'll tell that story uh, some other time. That was before I met Jesus. Come on now. But pirates, you know, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. And I, I was a pastor at first, youth pastor at First Baptist in Hewitt, Texas. I was working on my master's degree at Baylor. It's in the Waco area. And, and they, they would go around and they would, they would have this thing that they did. You know, every, every teenager has things that they do. And so they would go around this whole, about 100 or so students, sometimes 150. They'd go around and they would say, arr. All the time they would go, arr. Are you going to Arby's? And they would do this all the time. Why? Because pirates? I don't know. Is there something cool about pirates? I don't know. And so I want you from this moment on, every time you hear the word treasure, this is my assignment, okay? Every time you hear the word treasure, you've got to do that. It's a necessity. It's part of the experience today. And so let's practice it. Treasure. Ha <laughs> ha. All right. You guys, are, you guys are with me. Something about pirates when you have a treasure map. Oh, come on now. <laughs> Stay with me. I haven't even started yet. I've already lost you. Something about pirates when they have a treasure map. All right. Here we go. There's always an X, right? There's always an X. And then there's the point where you start. I just put a circle. The circle is an X. And then there's some sort of, oh, there's a hole there in my thing. And it goes, all right, there's a, there's a map. And so how do we bring these together? And so let's do this. We have a treasure map. <laughs> oh, this is going to be great. 
I can tell already. Let me remember how I did that. Here we go. Here we go. Y'all remember how I did that? Start over. Here we go. All right. And whenever I would just take this, and I made, a, I made an airplane, and I were just to launch this, and we set it to flight, and it landed. Just pretend. Just use your imagination with me. I'm no engineer. I'm a pastor. Give me a break. What if that treasure map? <laughs> I love this. It's going to be so awesome. It's the only thing you're going to remember from today is, is, is this. I won't say it again yet. Um, that map, what if it were to land at your feet? And that map had the greatest, the key to the greatest amount, surplus, pile of goods and riches that anyone could ever imagine. And it landed at your feet. Would you pick it up? Would you pick it up? (laughs) You betcha. You betcha. As you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 12 to 21 today, so we're going to go a little quicker through these verses than we have been. We've been going slow. We covered two verses last week, and, and Peter is teaching us, he's kind of his last letter to the early church saying, hey, I'm about to go. We'll get to that in a little bit. I'm about, Jesus is about to take me home. I'm about to breathe my last, and I'm in prison, and he knew his time was coming to an end. And so it's his last letter. He says, remember these things. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to walk, to live as a follower of Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a disciple. This is what it looks like, as we have said each week, to be all in for Jesus. And so let's read this. I'm going to dive in right in today. We, got to, we have some kids in the room today. We'll have a lot more in the second service. It's Family Worship Sunday, and it's one of those things. We value all generations. We also value our volunteers in our kids' area. And so on fifth Sunday, today's the fifth Sunday, we have Family Worship Sunday. We encourage our parents to bring their kids and worship with them. Some, some uh, can, some can't. Some, every, every family is different. Some are worshiping from home in the second service. We'll live stream, and they'll have family worship every Sunday because they're worshiping from home, and, and I, I love that. Thank you, technology, technology for that. But as we open up God's word, I want us to lean in and think about that, that mound of good riches that is at our feet. It's at our feet. That's really what Peter's going to say. Look at verse 12, 2 Peter chapter 1. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. And so those words, these things matter. We're going to come back to these things. What are these things? And the verse there, even though you know them, that and are firmly established. Here's what he's talking about is rooted. You are rooted in these things. You know these things, and you are rooted in them, in the truth you now have. You have it already. It's available to you. It's been given to you, this truth. 
That's what he's talking about. That word truth is, is the crux of this whole passage. And it really is, we, in that verse, we see the reason for this letter all together is that you are firmly established. In verse 13, I think it is right to refresh your memory. Some of your versions say, stir you up. And we can't say stir the soup anymore because that guy's gone. He's left the Houston Rockets and he's going on somewhere else. But that's what Paul is saying. He has stir you up. All those good things that fall down to the bottom of the soup. I want to stir those things up as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon be put aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. He's like, I'm, I'm on my way out. I know that. My time is near to go home and be with Jesus in heaven. And look what he says, verse 15. I will make every effort. By the way, that's the third time we found that in chapter 1. If you look back a little bit in verse 5, for these reasons, because God has given us everything we need to grow in godliness and we can bank on his promises. For this reason, verse 5, make every effort to add these things to your life. We've talked about that. Go back and read it. I'm not going to go back and read it now. In verse 10, therefore, knowing these things and putting these fruit that are rooted in Christ, the root, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort. That's the second time. Verse 10, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. We talked about that last week. Go to our website. Go to our podcast. You can catch up on those things. And here's that word again, verse 15. I will make every effort. So Peter's been saying, hey, you make these efforts. Now he's saying, look, I will do this. And I see Peter, and Peter is an apostle. He's a disciple. He walked with Jesus, but he is pioneering and he is leading and he is shepherding. May we say he is fathering in many ways the early church in Asia Minor. And I see Peter here pouring his heart out as a daddy. To me, there's such a challenge here for us dads in the room. This is a model for us to do what Peter was doing for the early church. Look at what he says. I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember. Here's that word. These things. He said, look, my time's almost done. I've been pouring my life out for these things, to teach you these things. Remember these things. Stir up these things in your heart. And I'm going to do everything I can. Make every effort. I'm going to strive to make sure these things continue to be remembered and followed. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I love these verses. Can you imagine if you were to see physically and walk with Jesus for a handful of years? Wouldn't that be amazing? Peter did that. That's what he's saying. Look, I walked with this Jesus. And some of you guys may be having doubts. And some of you guys may be teaching that he is not who he says he was. And so he goes on. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the, from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That's the transfiguration. We're going to come back to that in a moment. This is my son. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We were there. Peter, James, and John, we were, we were there. Can you imagine? 
We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That morning star is interesting. That's a portrayal that Jesus is coming back. Either we're going to meet him, like Peter says, either I'm going to meet him soon, I'm, I'm going to step away, I'm going to breathe my last, I'm going to go to heaven, or he's going to come back. He's coming back. Jesus came, and he, he is coming back, that second coming. That's what it's talking about. The day dawns when Jesus comes back and rises in your heart. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what are these things that he's talking about? He's talking about the very words breathed by God. Okay? All right. So, so here's the picture, okay? Here's the picture. We have this treasure <laughs> we have this treasure, and it has been sent by God, and it has landed at our feet. And that's what Peter is saying. Look, there's this rich abundance that will lead us to the abundance that is in Jesus Christ. Will we pick it up? And so today I want to answer in a little bit, in short, can this be trusted? That's what Peter's talking about. Can this that we hold in our hands, can it be trusted? We don't have time today. I will speak much more on this in the coming weeks, in the coming year. Just hang out, hang around, okay, because this is so important. Can this be trusted? We'll only get to a few things today here in our text, but here's what our statement of faith says. If you go to our website, this is what it will say. It says this about this, these things, these things. We say this, the Holy Bible, this, was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure. Oh, come on now. I set y'all up for that. This is true. It's right there. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. All that to say this. We're only going to get to a few reasons this is so, this is so reliable today. But listen, if you grab the word of God in your hands, if you've got one, or your phone, or whatever you got, your app, your Bible app, just grab it in your hands. Listen, this is the most sacred thing you will ever hold in your hand. You ever thought about that? Man, I take this thing for granted so much. We do. I've got like 20 of these around my house. People that don't have 20 Bibles, they tend to revere this a little more. I mean, this is just paper, right? It's just paper. No. 
No, this contains such riches, and it's been laid at our feet. It's the most sacred thing we could ever hold in our hands. Peter gives us two things. I'm going to move quickly, so bear with me today. I'm on time constraints these days because of two services. And so glad y'all are here. Y'all make room for the people coming to the second service, which I'm sure will be very full today. By the way, did y'all know we have small groups? If you're not in a small group, you can hang out. There's one There's one that uh, started last week that you can still join. If you go that way, going out into the fellowship hall, you can go to Experiencing God that way. It's not too late to join. You can join today. So go out, go that way. Devin's class meets, go out of the building, go over to the office building, that white small building in our conference room, is you can dive deep into this, the most sacred thing you'll ever hold in your hand today. So hang out. If you're not in a small group, hang out with us today. Feel free. If you don't want to come on Sundays, you can come to my home on Thursdays. We've got room at 6.30 in Grand Lake Estates. I'd love to have you. I'd love to have you. That was a rabbit trail. Peter gives us two things. He says in verse 16, the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry. And that's what Peter says. Look, I was there. And you know, one day... Let's just say 200 years from now, there's going to be a day when somebody says, look, there was a virus, and within a week, there was no toilet paper to be found. Somebody's going to say, "Nah, that's impossible. That's impossible. I mean, that's the strangest thing, right? But come on, we bear witness. We went to the Walmart, and we could not find the toilet paper. Why? Because we were there. We know it's true. We were there. And that's what Peter's saying in verse 16, is we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What, he's, what he means there is, look, this guy, he's no just guy. Jesus is legit. I mean, he's the real deal. All that he said, he was, he is. Can you imagine? Peter was there with the disciples, and Jesus said, hey, pretty soon I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. Peter would say in Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, he said, nah, Jesus, you'll never do that. And then Jesus responded to him, yes, I will. And also, if you are to follow me, you have to pick up your cross, die to yourself, and do the same. And a little bit after that, the next story in Matthew chapter 16, you know what that story is? Jesus took a handful of disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he took them up to this mountain. And that's what Peter's referring to. And he went with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus went up to this mountain. And they were there. We don't really know which mountain we kind of know. We don't really know, but we know they went up on a mountain, and something crazy happened. Jesus was transfigured in front of them. What does that mean? All of a sudden, he's white, and he has this glory that they'd never seen before. And off in the distance, you have Moses and Elijah, and Moses and Elijah, who were long dead, right? This really happened. That's what Peter's saying. This really happened. I was there. I mean, this virus did come, and the TP was gone. I was there. It's crazy stuff. But I saw it with my own eyes. 
And Peter, being the fisherman that he was, he always said the wrong things. He didn't know what to do. He saw Jesus being transfigured, and he saw these men talking to Jesus, Moses, and Elijah that he had always heard about but never seen with his own eyes. He's like, I got, I'll build you some houses. That's all he could say. That's all he could come up with. I'll build you some houses. <laughs> and then a voice came. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And at that point, Peter had nothing to say. He was speechless. And they went down that mountain, and Jesus said, Hey, don't say anything about this because you don't understand. Don't say anything about it till I die and rise again. And so now Peter's on the other side, and he's saying, Look, Jesus did die. I was wrong. He died on the third day. He rose again, and I saw him. I saw him with my own eyes. Hmm. I've got a lot more I want to go through, but I'm going to have to move past. But there's three things I would note really quickly. Because so many people these days say it's all just a legend and all this is a myth. And that's what Peter's saying is, look, there's people who say these things are not true. These things are not true. Peter's saying, I saw it with my own eyes, but there's so many other reasons that this cannot be legend. That word, that word, that word there that... Um, that's in our text, the word is mythos. These are not cleverly invented exaggerations there. That's what it says there in our text. It's the word mythos. We, of course, get our word myth, legend. It can't be a legend because the timing of the first is this. The timing is too early for the gospels to be legend. It was just a couple of decades, 20 years. I mean, 20 years from now, you going to remember COVID? Yeah, you will because you were there. You were there. 200 years from now, we won't be around, right? At that point, it's going to be a legend, but it wasn't yet. It wasn't yet. Peter was there. Paul was, met Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15. He wrote that in 55 AD, some 20 years after Jesus was crucified and rose again. And in, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, there are 500 people right now alive who saw Jesus. And he names a few of them. And he tells you to go check with them. Hey, you don't believe me? Go ask them. Go ask them. Go ask them. The timing is too early for gospel to be a legend. The second is this. The literary form of gospels is too detailed to be a legend. There actually was no historical fiction until centuries later. What we have here is a narrative, a gospel, the gospels that are historically rich in detail and first-person account. That's what Peter's saying here. I was there. This wasn't even a literary genre until centuries later. And that's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this, like these things. That's what he says. Of the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is a historical reportage that this really happened or else some un unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. That's a lot. Hold on. Modern novelistic realistic narrative. What he's saying, it wasn't around. It wasn't around. And he goes on to say, the reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. That's strong. Okay, that's strong. But what he's saying there, look, it's not possible that this is just a legend. It doesn't fit literary history. The, second, the third thing is the message itself was too costly to be a legend. People that say they made it up, it's because they could have more power or more money. What happened to these that are claiming these things? They were martyred. 
Even Peter was martyred, upside down crucified. The day before he was crucified, his wife was crucified. Standing there, she said to her husband, my beloved, remember Christ as she went to her death. Peter the next day. Listen, people don't sign up for that. People don't make things up for that. They don't. And so as if that's not enough, the second thing Peter says, not only I was there, I was an eyewitness, but the ultimate author of the Bible is not men, but God. And I love the picture that he gives there. And as we think about the picture that he gives, let's watch this video about the treasure of God that's been laid at our feet. The Word. You've known of it your entire life. A book that sits on your shelf, sometimes granting wisdom and sometimes gathering dust. But can you trust what you have is actually accurate? You're talking about a book written thousands of years ago, before computers or printing presses. How can you be sure you have the words God wants you to have? Many respected ancient writings were only loosely based on facts, with the historical writers often getting key dates and locations absolutely wrong. That's because many of the writers did not live in the countries they were writing about. Some weren't even living at the time of the events they recorded. Not so with the Bible. Scripture was recorded by those who lived in that time and experienced what they recorded firsthand. Moses, for example, was there when God gave the Ten Commandments. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were there and experienced the life of Jesus. So there is no doubt that what was written down was historically accurate because those who wrote it lived there at the time. But what about the handwritten copies that came later? Doesn't it seem that over time as one writer copied the word for future generations, that words and potentially entire passages would get rephrased and perhaps even omitted? How do you know the Bible you read is the Bible that was originally written? Wait! To answer that, you must go back to the way scripture was hand-copied into manuscripts. For centuries, three groups of people took the care of the Old Testament scriptures as seriously as life and death. They had strange names like Sopharim and Masoretes, and they were obsessed with the intricate minutiae, requiring a system of double checks and triple checks to ensure extreme accuracy in any reproduced copy of scripture. If one mistake, even one letter, was found to be inaccurate, the entire copy was destroyed. So, you can be confident that copies were made accurately. But how do these ancient manuscripts compare to the printed Bible we have today? In early 1947, a goat got himself lost in the caves off the coast of the Dead Sea. A young boy searching for the goat found jars filled with ancient Old Testament manuscripts. Scholars confirmed that when these earlier Old Testament manuscripts dated 125 BC were compared to later manuscripts dated 916 AD, the Dead Sea Scrolls were identical, word for word, in more than 95% of the text. The variation of 5% pertained almost exclusively to spelling variations. In other words, in over a thousand years, the only changes were in spelling and did not affect in any manner the meaning and intent of those scriptures. But what about the New Testament? 
Well, scholars evaluate the reliability of ancient literature by two standards. One, the time interval between the original and the earliest copies. And two, how many manuscripts are available. For instance, scholars deem Homer's Iliad of utmost accuracy because the time gap between the original and the earliest copies is a mere 400 years, and there are 643 copies in existence. In the same manner, Caesar's Gallic Wars is considered accurate even though its time span is a thousand years with only ten copies. The New Testament, on the other hand, has no equal in these two criteria. No historic writings even begin to come close. The span between the writing of the Bible and the earliest copy is only 50 years, and nearly 25,000 manuscripts survive to this day. Take that, Homer and Caesar. But why? Why is this accuracy so important? Because, in effect, it means God is saying, I protected my written word to you all these years so that you could hold it in your hand, read it, and know that it is an accurate revelation of me. I want you to know me and my ways, so I have given you my reliable word. And that is the final word. So not only is this the most sacred text you can hold in your hand, we can go on. I could go on for hours upon hours. Just know this. This is the, also the most reliable. It's the most reliable thing you'll ever hold in your hand. So the ultimate author of the Bible is not men, but God. And I want to close with this. I love the picture that he gives here. I've been carrying this around. I've moved this thing so many times. It's dusty. It's kind of raggedy, taggedy. But uh, I was given this when I was a teenager by my mom. I had a nautical theme in my room because I like to fish. I like to be on boats. And, but I want, you, I want you to get a picture of, of what he says there. Verse 19, we also had the prophetic messages somewhat completely reliable. He goes on to say, remember these scriptures. I want to move on to verse 21. It says, for prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, these are just people, okay, so you might ask, like, wait, the Bible was written by man. How could it be without error? How can it be so reliable? He says this, though human, yes, they were, in, they were fallible people, but this, these things spoke by God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Okay? Funny thing about this boat. Here's the picture here. The word carried along is the word pharaoh. Okay? Carried along. And so it's, it's the idea of 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 the wind hitting the sails, pushing the boat along. And I'm not a sailor. I have a motorized boat. I like to turn the key and go. That's my personal preference. Maybe you are a sailor. The funny thing about this boat, like you would, you would put these sails, it's got a bunch of them, you would put the sails out, and the wind would come and feel the sails. And whatever direction the wind, wind is going, you kind of turn, it would grab the sails, and it would push it along. It would push it along. And so that word Pharaoh is what he's saying there. As men wrote, God was carrying their words to the destination that God wanted for them. The Spirit of God was giving them these words. And yes, the person was writing, but they're not the author. God is the author. Yes, they have personal traits. This boat looks a little different from other boats, but sails are sails, and wind is wind. And the Spirit of God has spoken to these men. It's the same word in verse 18. The same word is this voice from God 
spoke. This word Pharaoh carried along, this, this message was carried along by God to us. We're all familiar with that passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is given by inspiration. We get the word inspiration from the Latin word inspiro. And that's the word in the Latin text in that very first, that it was inspired. But you know what the Greek word is? The Greek word is pharaoh. Literally, God breathed. The wind of God breathed. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Here's, what, here's the picture. I want to close with this. The band's going to come and they're going to close us. But I want you to see the picture here. Here's what Peter is, is saying to, to that early church, okay? So uh, all of this leads to this, okay? Is, is we have, we have this treasure, okay, all right? And it is at our feet. Will we receive it? And God wants us to move toward him. He wants us to move in toward this abundant life that he has for us. Funny thing about this boat, there's the picture that Peter has given, is that God wants to move us. He's not designed us to stay where we are. He wants to meet you where you are and move you to him. But funny thing about this boat that you notice is what's wrong with the sails? They're tied up. And so what does a boat do that doesn't have a motor and that doesn't have its sails out? It goes absolutely nowhere. And here's what Peter's saying. He's like, look, there's this really rich, abundant mound of goodness that's available to you. And it's there to move you on toward good things, toward riches that are unfathomable to this world. It's there to carry us toward our destination, that is to know Jesus and to make him known. And the question is today, are we positioning ourselves? are we positioning our vessel to receive that wind and move on in our spiritual life? And that's my question for you. Are you daily positioning yourself where God can move you on toward the life that he has for you? Are you daily lifting yourselves, saying, and God is always above us. He's always, and he's meeting us where we're at, and there's this constant movement of God toward himself. The question is, do we raise ourselves and go toward it? Well, how do we do that practically? It all comes back to this. The most sacred, reliable thing we'll ever hold in your hand. Will you, every single day, Read it. Maybe today you come with doubts. You're like, man, I just really don't know if this is true. May I challenge you with something? Would you just open your heart and mind and read the word of God? Just open it. Because this is not a book. This is alive. This is alive. It's not just a book authored by some men. It's authored by God. And he is pursuing you. He's pursuing you. 
A lady named Anne Rice said as she read this that, that she feels that she hunted for the real Jesus in the Bible and she became aware, aware that she herself was being hunted. C.S. Lewis said that his search for God really became like the mouse's search for the cat. Philosopher Peter Kreef said it this way, that studying the Bible in college was like looking through a keyhole and seeing someone looking back at you. Listen, if you are struggling today, would you just open the word of God and that you would ask God to show himself to you. Open your heart. Raise your sails. And as we do that, man, God's going to lead us in his ways. He's going to lead us to himself. He's going to lead us to his riches. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Please forgive us for undervaluing not faithfully acknowledging the incredible riches you have put at our fingertips it's right here it's right here it's your very word to us that leads us to your very presence to walk with you now and toward eternity Jesus, give us a burden for your word. Help it to come alive in our hearts, in our minds, and resonate as we're rooted in Christ to incredible kingdom fruit all around us. Jesus, may it happen as you move in our midst. In your name we pray.